Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. What does it take to become a highly successful person in any endeavor in life? Some would have you believe it's seven habits. And maybe there is some truth to that. I'm not so sure seven habits make a person a good leader. I think they make them perhaps a good manager. But nevertheless, that's necessary. What does it take to become highly successful? I would say unreasonable, unreasonability. Being unreasonable. People that are highly successful are unreasonable people. They're unreasonable in their attitude about fear. In other words, unreasonable fearlessness. So, for example, when Apple started, the dominant players in the field were IBM, Dell, and Microsoft. And everybody knew that they were too big to tackle. Anybody with a realistic vision in business knew that they couldn't compete Pete with IBM, except Steve Jobs. He had a different idea. He thought outside the box. He had unreasonable expectations, and he was unreasonably fearless. I think that highly successful people are also unreasonable in the goals they set. You see, reasonable goals fit with what is predictable, what's likely to happen, and what we already know. It leads to consistent thinking, but always inside the box, and usually only for those things that we know are attainable. Unreasonable goals do what? They challenge us to think where? Not inside the box, but what? Outside the box. And to achieve the impossible. Steven Spielberg was a college dropout because he had unrealistic goals and ambitions. He got a menial job at Universal Studios, and he sneaked in every night to do extra work to learn more about the industry, and they kept kicking him out. But no matter how many times they kicked him out of the studio, he stayed with it. And he produced a little short film called Emblem, and that was a basis for him getting a seven-year contract as the youngest director in Universal history, and the rest is history. He has produced over 180 films of one type or another, and his industry has produced almost $9 billion worth of revenue. You see, he had unreasonable goals. But some would say this. You see, if you set unreasonable goals all the time, eventually people will become frustrated because they don't meet them and they will just produce mediocre work. Well, that means that highly successful people should also have unreasonable what? perseverance. Little Tommy came home with a note from his teacher one day, late in the 19th century, one school, one room schoolhouse. He was partly deaf, and his teacher said, he's stupid, I don't want him back in class, keep him home. So Tommy's mother educated him at home. He had an unconventional, and back then it was unheard of, well it wasn't unheard of, but it wasn't homeschooling like we know it today. 
He had an unconventional education. He didn't have any uh, official certification, but you know who I'm talking about. He grew to be Thomas Edison, our most prolific, successful inventor, 1,093 patents, probably because he had learned outside the box how to think unconventionally, founded General Electric. And I know you know the story about his development of the filament for the light bulb he had invented. How many experiments he did, we don't know. The accounts are 700, 900, 1,000. But perseverance, you know what he said. He said, I have not failed, not once. I've just found 10,000 ways that things don't work. Unreasonable. Unreasonable in our fearlessness, unreasonable in our goals that we set, and unreasonable in our perseverance and our hard work. You know, that's the way faith is. Faith that calculates and faith that only does what we know we can do based on how we calculate isn't faith at all. It's what? It's sight. It's what we see. Faith that has no imagination is not leadership. It's merely management. The man that we're talking about, we talked about last week, we're talking about tonight, had an unreasonable faith. Um, he was fearless. He pursued the goals that God set for him, even though they seemed to be unreasonable and impossible, and he did what? He persevered. You know, just to go back and look at Abraham's background for just a moment, fill in a couple of the gaps. You know, in Genesis 12, we heard very well last week that God called him and he blessed him, and he expected him to do an unreasonable thing. Remember what Alan told us he did. He did what? He left the security of family and home there in Haran, and he set off to a place that God called him. He didn't even know where it was. How old was Abraham, or how old was Abram when he did that? He's three years older than I. 75, 75. And yet God did what he promised him, the land that he was traversing, and he did what? He followed him, and he worshiped him there. God then rescued him then, later in chapter 12, this probably one of Abraham's weaker moments. When there was a famine in Israel, he didn't stay in Israel and trust God to provide him there. He went to Egypt, as later we will find the children of Israel did. But nevertheless, God rescued him and rescued Sarah. The Pharaoh had done what? He had uh, taken her as hostage and put him, her in his harem, and God rescued him. And then in Genesis 13, Abram trusted God to provide when they divide the land. He let Lot, who was younger than he, choose. And Lot chose the what? The fertile valley and the rich cities. And Abram then let him do it. That was unreasonable. You see, Abram should have had first claim. But he took the hill country, and that's exactly where God wanted him to be. And as he went into the hill country, God said, You see all this land to the north, to the east, to the west, and to the south? All of this land will be your descendants one day. Unreasonably, he then basically died to self, didn't he? God then empowered him to rescue Lot. And it was unreasonable of him, one tribal leader, to go up against four kings that had defeated the other five kings and Sodom and Gomorrah. But God empowered him to defeat them and to rescue Lot and to bring all the booty back to Sodom, which he refused to take. And he honored God by doing what? 
the priest king of Salem, or Jerusalem, Melchizedek. He honored God by tithing to Melchizedek. It was unreasonable to expect that he could defeat the kings, but with God's power he did. God established his covenant with him then in Genesis 15. And we didn't quite make it that far last week. So let's talk about that for a moment. In, in Genesis 15, the beginning of the covenant is established, and God promised him three things. He promised Abram that he would have his own son. It wouldn't come through Eleazar, his servant in his house. And they would have, he would have innumerable, innumerable descendants that the land that he was on he would possess. And not only that, God said, you know, there's going to come a time when your people are going to be enslaved, and I will deliver them after 400 years. God promised in that covenant. And in that complex of promises, it says, as Alan did say last week in Genesis 15, 6, it said, and Abram then believed the Lord, and as we read about from Romans tonight, then God accounted that, reckoned, reckoned in him that to be what? Righteousness. You see, he believed, he trusted, unreasonably. What was the significance of that covenant? It was the fourth covenant that God had established, if you include the Adamic covenant, which isn't explicitly stated as a covenant. But in that, remember, God had blessed Adam and Eve with everything that they needed, and their sole duty was to do what? To be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the land, to subdue it, and to be good stewards of it, just not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they failed to do. The second covenant was the first Noahic covenant. Remember when we talked about the flood? God then promised that he was going to destroy the world, but he was going to rescue Noah. And the part of the covenant that Noah fulfilled was what? Build the ark, number one. And number two, what? Bring the animals in so they would reproduce later, and also he would have animals for sacrifice. And the second Noahic covenant then that came in chapter 9 of Genesis, God promised I will what? I will not destroy the earth again by water. And he gave the sign of the covenant, which was the rainbow. And Noah's duty was threefold. It was to do not to eat meat with blood in it, not to shed blood, and also then to do what Adam and Eve had been commanded to do, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So those three covenants God has already worked with his people before, and now we come to this fourth covenant. What's the significance of it? What's the significance of the covenant? The bereath. Bereath means to cut, and in human terms, it's when two people come together, like Abraham did later with Abimelech, and they usually have a meal, and they cut the animal that has been sacrificed, and they share a meal together. Uh, it's the basis for which we have the expression to cut a deal. In divine human terms, though, when it's a divine covenant, it's usually initiated by God, and it, and it involves some kind of sacrifice. So in Genesis 15, seven chapters before where we are tonight, by way of background, we look at what happened there when the covenant was established, and what did Abram do? God commanded him to get a heifer, to get a female goat, to get a, a ram, and Ab Abram did what? He cut him in half, and he laid him on the ground. He then took the turtle dove and the pigeon, and he put them on the ground without cutting them in half. And then the covenant was cut the next morning when the smoking pot and the flaming torch that had been sent by God passed through the pieces and scorched them. You see, the covenant was sealed by that sign. The characteristics of covenant, they're not contracts. They're what? They're covenants. They're agreements that are based on promise that are uh, usually 
two-sided, but sometimes they can be initiated by God only. They can be conditional or unconditional, but they maintain some kind of relationship between the two people that enter into agreement. It's based on mutuality, a mutual relationship and mutual responsibility and mutual benefits. And the covenant usually has a sign with it. What was the sign of the Noahic covenant? Rainbow. Now, we haven't quite gotten there in chapter 15, but when we come to 17, he then further explains the covenant, and in chapter 17, there is a sign that's associated with it, and it's what? Circumcision. The significance of this, I think, and the reason we talk about covenants at this point is because the covenant then becomes part of this scarlet thread that runs through Jewish and then Christian history, the history of redemption, all the way from Adam then to Revelation, from Adam to Noah, from Noah to Abram, then Abraham, and then it was renewed with Isaac and Jacob, and then with Israel at Mount Sinai, and then with David and the everlasting covenant in 2 Samuel, and then the new covenant that Christ brought, and which we celebrate as the church. Let's take a look before we look at chapter 22 tonight about the faith pattern, this unreasonable faith pattern of, of Abram and then later Abraham in his life. There's a recurring pattern here. Uh, that I see at any rate. The pattern goes something like this. God promises. Abram or Abraham responds. And then there is some kind of crisis that occurs. And out of that crisis, God redeems. So we hear then, once again, this theme of redemption. It runs through the promises and the covenants of God with Abraham throughout his life. This redemption usually involves a couple of things. It Almost always involves a rescue and reclamation, but often it involves something else. There's a follow-on blessing. So the first cycle we see in Genesis 12, and we've talked about that, but let's repeat it. Abram is 75 years old, and God promises to bless him and to make him a blessing. There's the blessing, and the response is that Abram is obedient. He leaves home. He follows God. He worships him at Bethel. And then there's a crisis that comes right after that. There's the famine. And he does what? He goes to Egypt. The other part of the crisis is Pharaoh takes his wife. There's a redemption. There's a rescue there. God rescues Sarai and brings him back to Abram. And there's a blessing that comes out of that. What does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh then adds to his sheep and adds to his oxen and adds to his donkeys and his servants and his camels. There's a second cycle of this promise kind of cycle. In Genesis 15 and 16, we're there right now in Genesis 15. Abram now is how old? It's 12 years later. Well, 11 years later. He's 86 years old now. And he's promised in chapter 15 a son. He's promised many descendants, and he's promised the land. And God establishes now formally a covenant with Abram. Name hasn't changed yet. And what is Abram's response? What did he do? Verse number 16. And Abram believed and God counted it for righteousness. Now let me ask you this. In the passage we looked at earlier tonight in Romans, it tells us, did he believe unto righteousness after circumcision or before circumcision? Before circumcision. And there was a reason for that. Later then, those that believe like Abram did can be children of Abraham because they have believed as he did before circumcision 
So it's not a matter of being a Jew that has been circumcised. There's a blessing that comes, and then God redeems that. Um, there's a crisis that comes out of this, rather. Uh, there's not a child at first, you know. And then Sarai begins to worry about this. And she urges Abram then to go into Hagar and to have a child with her. And that creates the crisis. Sarah becomes jealous and she drives Hagar into the wilderness. And she's abandoned. No, she's not. Because she calls out to God and there's redemption there. And God redeems her. And God hears. He will hear me, Hagar says. And he rescues her and he sends her home. And the blessing that comes out of that is Ishmael. And what does Ishmael mean? God will hear. And there's a promise that is given to Ishmael and to Hagar. He too will become a what? A great nation. So you see, all of the redemption in Abraham's life isn't only of... of there's a third cycle in Genesis 17, and it leads up to 22. So the next five chapters, 17 through 21. Abram is now how old? 99 years old. It's been how long? 87 to 99, 12 years since he's been promised a son. He has Ishmael, but that is not to be the son of blessing. The promise then comes through the covenant of circumcision in chapter 17. Here's the key promise that's made there. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. And here's the first promise, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And then he reiterated the terms that had been given earlier in the covenant in chapter 15. He said, uh, you are going to then have the land, you're going to have the descendants, you're going to have uh, 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 prosperity. And now there's a sign that comes with the covenant, and that, of course, is circumcision. What else happens in chapter 17? Abram's name is changed from great father, Abram, to what? Abraham, which means what? Father of many nations. Not only that, Sarai's name is changed from princess, our mother, to Sarah, which is, I hesitate to use this term because there's a pagan cult named name this, great mother. It actually means something more like noble queen, but she is the mother of many nations. And Isaac's by name is predicted to be born in this covenant, and the covenant is going to be his. So what's Abram's response? Now, Abraham, Abraham obeyed, and what did he do? He circumcised himself and Ishmael and all of the male attendants in the house, the household males. Then a crisis comes. There's a conflict between him, him and the Philistine king Abimelech, who takes Sarah. <laughs> She's 90 years old. She must have been a beautiful 90 years old. Uh, so he takes her into his harem. And now it's not Abram that intervenes. God himself intervenes and warns Abimelech about what he's, what he's about to do in his death. And, of course, he returns Sarah. So God intervenes and redeems Sarah. And then there is a blessing that comes out of it. Once again, Abimelech gives him more sheep and oxen and servants. And Isaac is born the fulfillment of the blessing, and there's a covenant of peace with Abimelech. So that's the background that leads us now up to chapter 22. To see what happens in chapter 22, the short version is found in Hebrews. Hebrews, the 11th chapter, verse 17 through 19. By faith, 
when he was tested, offered, Abraham, Abraham offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his, what? Only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. So when we want to understand what's happening here, take a look at Abraham's background when he was Abram. He came from Ur of the Chaldees, later moved to Haran. We know that with his family, and then he left Haran to Canaan. And you know that in Chaldea, they, they had their pantheon of gods, headed by the sky god Anu and his consort Antu. There was a whole pantheon, hierarchy of them. Enlil was the earth god. The water god was Ea. But the local god there in Ur was Nana. has nothing to do with being a grandmother, okay? Nana was the moon god, the patron god of Ur. There was a three-stage ziggurat or, or tower, very much like the Tower of Babel, 150 feet high. That doesn't sound very high, but folks, that's 15 stories, pretty tall. And there are remnants of it standing today. There were two temples at the base and one at the top dedicated to Nana, and they practiced temple prostitution there, and they practiced what? Human sacrifice. So he comes out of a culture that is accustomed to human sacrifice, and then he goes into Canaan, and he is surrounded by cults, by tribes that practice human sacrifice. Moloch regularly required child sacrifice by fire. Baal, in times of crisis, worshipers of Baal sacrificed their children. And notoriously, the Phoenicians on the coast, Tyre and Sidon practice child sacrifice. So the background of this story is he comes out of a setting where human sacrifice is expected by the gods and often child sacrifice. Who is this man, Abram? Well, we know he is a Semite, the eldest son of Noah, Shem, descended through him. He is a, not only a Semite, but he's a Hebrew. What does that mean? You know, in chapter 14, it's talking about Abram then going to fight the four kings and, uh, and defeating Chedolah Omar and, and his troops. It describes him as Abraham the Hebrew. Well, he's a descendant of Eber, or Eber found in Genesis 11 and earlier in, in chapter 10. It's during Eber's time uh, that the world was divided. What does that mean? Probably that it's referring to the Tower of Babel. And if that's true then, and you look at the lineage and the time of each generation, it means that Abram, that was the seventh generation after Eber, who was a descendant of Shem, that Abram probably was born about 200 years after the division at the Tower of Babel. So he's a Semite. That's his identity. He is a Hebrew. That is his identity. And he is particularly identified as the son of whom? Terah. Eighth generation from Shem. The brother of Nahor, the brother of Haran, and the uncle of Lot, and the half-brother of whom? Sarai. So he only told a half-lie when he said that she was his sister. But a half-lie is just as good as a full lie, isn't it? What happens, the reason I bring up this identity is because Abraham and Sarah also have a cycle of identity crises leading up to chapter 22. 
And in this, what happens? When God redeems, he doesn't just save, but he's also in the process of working with both Abram, Abraham, Sarai, Sarah, and helping them to understand who they really are, what their true identity is. And there's a repetitive cycle that occurs. God allows them to go through a crisis, and then in the redemption, then, he reveals to them a little bit more about who he has designed them to be. Take a look at it. Let's go back to chapter 12 again. Are we ever going to get to chapter 22? Yes, we're going to get there in a moment. Okay. In chapter 12, uh, Abram learns that he's no longer really who. He has left the home in Haran where his father is. Yes, he's still the son of Terah, but that's not his primary identity. He's been called as Abram, hasn't he? to this land that he doesn't know, and he is going to be the father of a nation. You see, he learns more about what his identity is in God, redeeming out of that crisis of leaving home. The second phase in Genesis 17, that is the covenant of circumcision. Abram and Sarai learn there they're not only great father and great mother, they are father of many nations and mother of many nations, and the crisis that comes immediately after that is the conflict with Hagar. Again, there's a conflict. And this time, Sarai kicks her out, and she's gone for good after the birth of Ishmael. But God redeems that, doesn't he, through making Ishmael the father of, many, of, of a nation too. You see, their, their names have been changed, and they come to understand more about what their identity is in that crisis. And they see in, in chapter 21, just before our story tonight, that the airship is born. Isaac is now born. So they see that their heritage, their promise of the continuation of their identity is to be in this son that has actually born, who is Isaac. And then we come to Genesis 22. They're pretty secure in that identity. Now they've got a, an heir in the line of both Abram and Abraham and Sarah. And they know what their true identity is. And he is going to inherit through the bloodline. And this is important because this is before the resurrection, that they know about the resurrection. And one's legacy was secured by their progeny. One's legacy was secured by their descendants, by their children. So they feel safe and secure in this. And then comes the crisis. And what is the crisis? God commands him now to take Isaac and sacrifice him. Wow. What is he doing? He is redeeming this understanding of who they are, which is incomplete, and he is going to show them more about who they have been designed to be. Would Abram pass the test? Abraham passed the test. You know the story. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, God said, take now your son, your only son, your only begotten son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So, Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering. And he arose and he went to the place which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and he saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Now you stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. 
So the two of them walked on together. Can you imagine the silence as they walk up the mountain? Isaac then spoke to Abraham, his father. It literally means he broke the silence. And he said, my father. And Abraham said, here I am, my son. And then Isaac said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together, and then they came to the place which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Isaac is bound. Mm. Wow. Then Abraham raised his eyes. Or, let me go back. But the angel of the Lord then, as Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. And God said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that, you're, that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then Abraham raised his eyes, and he looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. What is that? The Lord will provide. Jehovah what? Jehovah Jireh. And it is said, it is called that to this day. In the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. In Hebrew tradition, this is called the Akedah, the binding, the binding of Isaac because he bound his son in verse number nine. And this is God's supreme test for Abraham, obviously. Uh, Abraham had faced several tests before. Wearsby put it this way. He said he faced the family test by leaving his dad behind. He faced the famine test by going to Egypt and then God rescuing them there. He, he, he passed the fight test by defeating the four kings. He passed the fortune test when he rejected the fortune of the rich valley in Sodom. And he passed the fatherhood test. He did not pass the fatherhood test because he allowed Sarah to convince him to father Ishmael. He's been tested several times. What was God's intent in testing Abraham? Did God know whether or not Abraham would obey? Of course he did. Was it really to find out how strong Abraham's faith was? I don't think so. God is omniscient. It wasn't because of that. And also Abraham had repeatedly proven his faith and he had believed and it was accounted righteousness. I think it has to do with what Peter tells us. He was doing what to his faith? He's purifying his faith like what? Like gold is refined in the fire. He was doing like what James says. 
When we go through trials and tribulations, we ought to rejoice about that. Why? Because through that, what is happening? Our faith is being tested, and we are being made resilient, and we are persevering so that our faith might be made what? Perfect. We might be the perfect person, that is, who God created us to be. What God is doing is he's doing this for the benefit of Abraham. Abraham, he's not finished with Abraham yet. He's going to live many more years. And he wants Abraham to be locked in completely knowing that his test has been, his faith has been tested to the ultimate degree. He is making Abraham stronger and more resilient and better equipped to endure. What do we say about unreasonable faith? Unreasonable faith is the kind of faith that does what? It endures. It perseveres. Beyond his faith, God was testing Abraham, something else in Abraham too. Look at verse number 12. I know, now, I know that you do what you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. What was he testing? Abraham not only trusted God, but he was also willing to what? Obey God. That's what God's testing here. You see, he feared God so much that his focus was on worshiping God And he proved his worship of Jehovah, God, by always obeying him. In other words, he feared God more than he feared what would happen if he obeyed him, possibly lose Isaac. You know, the same is true later of Israel at Mount Sinai. Um, This fear of God. The only, only other place that testing and fear in the Old Covenant are mentioned in this way together is in Exodus 20. And it's when Israel shows that it fears God when God tests them before he gives them the Ten Commandments. What is God doing? He's testing to make sure that they will, in fact, not just say they believe, but that they will obey his commandments. Jesus proved this himself. Was he tested? Was he tempted? And I know some people want to make a distinction between testing and temptation, and there is a subtle difference here, but was he tempted? Yes. And he proved not only his faith, but his obedience when Satan tempted him in the wilderness, as an example for us. So it's not just a testing of his his faith, it's also testing of his willingness to obey that in that faith. And this test is very radical in its nature. You know, I think that's important for us to remember. God hasn't really, really, really tested us until he tests us to bear that which is unbearable. Does that make sense? You know, when we have tests out there that are easy to pass, you know, multiple choice, true, false kind of test. God gives us the essay test. He gives us a hard test. And it's only when we have been tested to the point where we believe it's impossible, that it is unbearable, then that God has fully tested us and we really grow. The faith that Abraham has, radical faith. Imagine, unimaginable faith. It doesn't say anything about Sarah in this story, does it? But she's in the tent. And Abraham leaves the tent and he takes Isaac with him and she knows that he's going to go sacrifice but there's no animal. I don't know if 
On the way out, Abraham said anything to her or not. The Bible doesn't say. But if she has an inkling of what's going on, can you imagine the despair that she is feeling and the anxious eyes that she puts on the horizon waiting for them to return? Unimaginable. Imagine Abraham's unspoken questions. Is this God any different than the gods that I left in Ur? Is this God any different than the gods here in Canaan, Moloch and Baal? Can he really mean this to sacrifice my son? Or will he change his mind? Imagine what is unimaginable. Isaac looks around and he doesn't see an animal and he asks his dad about it after he breaks that silence. And then what does Abraham do? He binds him on the altar. And what does Isaac say? There's nothing in Scripture. He's silent. Imagine. Unimaginable faith on the part of all three of them, not just Abraham. Think of the significance of the location. The land of Moriah means chosen by the Lord. It's mentioned in 2 Chronicles, the uh, third chapter. It's the only other place in Scripture it's mentioned. And it is the Mount of Solomon upon which the temple is built. Is there an illusion here? Is this pointing to something? Of course it is. This is all going to end. The ultimate test of faith and obedience is all going to end in Jerusalem someday with another sacrifice. What's the significance of the offering? Well, it's a burnt offering, and we know what a burnt offering is. Everything is consumed. Nothing is left. When a calf or a lamb was sacrificed... They usually shared the meat that came out of it. But a burnt offering, it was completely consumed. And this is Isaac. Isaac was Abraham and Sarah's hope for the future, their progeny, their legacy. If their name and their heritage was going to live on, since they don't really have a concept like we do of the resurrection, it rested in whom? It rested in Isaac. Wow. Wow. So Abraham expresses not only an unreasonable faith, but a mature faith and an unwavering obedience. Look at what he does. You know, the Lord said, pick up and go and do this. And, and it said that he waited a day or two. No, he did what? He went immediately and he was fully prepared, just as he had done when he left Haran. There's no gap between when God says, leave and go and Abraham does that in chapter 12. He does the same thing here immediately. Fully prepared, fully intent on doing this. He has the wood, he has the fire, he has the knife. So there's no excuse when he gets there. He has everything that it takes to sacrifice. He had faith in both the person of God and the plan of God. He had faith in God himself. He trusted that God was wise and powerful and was willing and able to redeem. What did he say? Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. That's the answer. It actually means God will see. God will see to it. You notice what he said? We'll see. What's happening, Isaac says? He said, we'll see. No, he said, God will see. God will see it through. Just as the Lord had provided for Hagar in the wilderness with a well when she was parched with thirst, God is going to provide here. The name of the place, Jehovah Jireh, reflects this where Abraham eventually does the sacrifice. He trusted God. He knew that God was able to raise, raise Isaac. Now, he doesn't have a New Testament concept of resurrection, but we read from Romans just a moment ago that he believed, 
and we read it out of Hebrews, the 11th chapter, just a moment ago. He believed that God had the power of resurrection. It's not based on an understanding of Christ's resurrection, I think. But the passage that earlier Chelsea read said that what? Here he is, 100 years old, with no energy, and God invigorates him and Sarah and enables them to bring life. So you have to imagine then that he knows that if Isaac does die, that God has the power to reinvigorate him. He has the power to do the impossible because he's done it before. He's done it with Abraham and he's done it with Sarah when he gave birth to Isaac to begin with. He trusted God too because he feared the person of God more than he feared disobedience to spare his son. He also had faith not just in God, but in God's plans. I mean, who's initiated all of this? It's God. God is the one that called him to go from Haran then to this land that he did not know. It is God that has redeemed him time and time and time again. It's God's plan. God had, had assured him that it was not going to be anyone else. It was going to be Isaac that was going to be the legacy through whom he was going to have his, his future. And he believes God's plan. If God really meant all these promises, then he would find a way to keep it, his promise. If God really intended to fulfill his plan, he would find a way to do so. You see, I think what's being said here is he knew it was God's plan and not Abraham's plan. God was responsible for working out the details. Abraham was simply responsible to do what? To be obedient. Hmm. You see, both Abraham and Isaac are resolutely committed as they walk along silently. Can you imagine the silence? But they were undeterred. They kept going. They kept going until Isaac broke the silence. And then it is the son to the father asking the question, walking together in harmony and uh, unity, and when Abraham lays him on the altar, Isaac apparently makes no complaint. Father and son. Father making the sacrifice of his son who was willing to be sacrificed. There's an additional promise that is given then after this is over. Uh, you know, he reiterates all the other promises. There's going to be, you're going to have the land, you're going to have the descendants and all that. But he also adds this. In verse number 17, look at the additional promise that has not been promised before in verse 17. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. What does he say? I am going to empower your descendants to take the land. So it's not only that the land is yours, I'm going to empower them to take it. This is a forecast of what then happens later in Numbers, the 13th chapter, when God says, okay, I've taken you out of Egypt. Now it's time to do what? Go in and possess the land. The promise is found back here in Genesis. They have the power to take the cities. And what do the people do? They forget God's promise. Only two remembered, only two faithful spies, and the rest do not heed the call. What's the significance of the rescue? Well, it forecasts, obviously, the coming of Christ. Moriah is the mount in Jerusalem near which Jesus died. And he received back unto himself a type, it says in Hebrews the 11th chapter, verse 19. He received back unto himself a symbol. So this is not reading too much into Scripture here, folks. Now, you heard me say before, we have to be careful that we don't use allegory to read Christ into every bush and rock in the Old Testament. But there is an intention for us to do, do it here. He received him back as a type, as a symbol. The ram is obviously a symbol for the Lamb of God. John the Baptist later says, Behold what? 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is his only begotten son. I know that Abraham has two sons. I also know that Abraham later married another woman after Sarah died. Do you remember her name? Keturah. He has another six sons. But it is Isaac. You see, that only begotten can also mean unique. You see, this is the unique son. This is the one that I have chosen for this special purpose. For God so loved the world that he gave his what? Only begotten son. So there's clearly a future look toward Christ. It set Jehovah and Hebrew worship apart from paganism. Jehovah is merciful, not murderous, demanding the slaughter of infants. Isn't it interesting that we talk about that tonight after we discuss what we did this morning about abortion? Israel, after this, is forbidden to sacrifice children to Moloch in Leviticus 20th chapter and Deuteronomy the 12th chapter. Later, northern Israel is condemned for polluting the land, for shedding innocent blood and violating that. We see in Psalm 106. You see, this was one of the re major reasons that northern Israel was then destroyed and exiled. This, is, this story is here also, not just to test Abraham's faith, but to give an example to Israel that they are not to do this, that it is an abomination before the Lord. I think this rescue also completes Abraham's righteousness. Okay. Genesis 15, 6. And Abram, not Abraham yet, Abram believed and God reckoned it to be what? Righteousness. And we see this then in Romans. What, what justifies? Faith justifies. But also here it proves that obedience also justifies. It wasn't just faith. It was faith and action that justifies. And you know this. There's no division between Paul and James. Faith justifies, but faith that has no works is empty. It is only the kind of faith that obeys that justifies. You see, Abraham exercised faith that works. He didn't just possess faith. He did it. And James tells us very clearly, and he uses this as the example. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. We talk about sola fide. We are, we are justified by faith alone. But what we mean when we say that is we don't work for our salvation. But the kind of faith that justified is, justifies is the kind of faith that what? That works. Almost finished. A couple of other results of this rescue. It affirmed to Isaac, not just Abraham. It affirmed the covenant to Isaac. Can you imagine lying lay on the altar and the, sword, the, the knife is coming down on you? Almost. And then God halts. Abraham heard God. Do you think Isaac heard him? I think he did. <laughs> Whether or not he did, I don't know. But Abraham stops. And I'm sure Abraham explains to him. And he goes and he gets the ram. You see, God had already predicted to Abraham that it would be Isaac that would be the 
the course of the blessing and receive the covenant uh, in, in chapter 17 in the covenant of circumcision. And it was later confirmed to Isaac in Genesis 26. Later then, he tells Isaac then not to go down to Egypt. He faces another situation very similar to Abraham. He says, don't go down to Egypt. I'll provide for you. And then he reiterates this covenant with, with Isaac. Can you imagine then in Isaac's life what he thinks about at that moment? It probably goes back to lying on the altar, being rescued by God, and he knows Jehovah Jireh. God delivers so it affirms the covenant to Isaac even before it is, it is spoken orally to him in Genesis 26. And last of all, finally, this whole problem of identity. Who was Abram, great father? Who was Sarai, the princess? Who was Abraham, the father of many nations? And Sarah was the great mother of many nations. No, they weren't really. Those were the roles they were fulfilling for God. At this altar, Abraham, and I'm sure he goes back and tells Sarah what's happened, and Isaac knows it too. They're no longer the child of laughter, the great mother, the great father. Who are they? They're simply his. They're God's possession. They are his children to accomplish his purpose. I leave you with this thought. Do you have an unreasonable faith? Do you have an unimaginable faith? Has God ever put you in a situation where he tested you to the point where it seemed unbearable? I suspect he has. I'll leave you also that are a little bit older like, like I. You know, we're never too old. We're never too old. We're never too old to face new challenges. Abraham was how old? A hundred we're never too old to learn new truths. Did Abraham learn something that day? Absolutely. We're never too old to grow in faith and obedience. Abraham did when he was 100. One of the most marvelous stories in all of Scripture. And I think a linchpin in our understanding through the course of the covenants, how God is working through the scarlet thread. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gamble Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.